Cecil Clark's caravan was a marvel to behold. More than 14 feet in height, it stood taller than a London double-decker bus, and its low-slung chassis was a revolutionary piece of engineering. But the real joy of Clark's caravan was its luxurious interior. It came with a lavatory, bedrooms and an ensuite bathroom. It had cotton-cold running water and its own home-built generating plant. Clark had built it in his workshop behind the family home in Tavistock Street, Bedford. At weekends, he'd hook it to the family saloon and take it on road trials, hurtling through the country lanes of rural Bedfordshire, while Dorothy Clark clutched the dashboard and their two sons, John and David, made mischief in the back. Like all of Clark's caravans, it came equipped with a unique suspension system that promised passengers a smoother ride than any other caravan on the road. It was a promise in which Clark took considerable pride, for he was the designer, the engineer, the architect and the mechanic. Clark was portly and bespectacled, a lumbering gentle giant with heavy bones and a mechanic's hands. Half boffin half buffoon, he was viewed by his neighbours with affection tinged with humour. Those neighbours would smile knowingly to one another as they watched him buffing the paintwork of his beloved vehicles, unaware that he had the hands of a magician and the brains of a genius. Clark's extraordinary caravans had come to the notice of an engineer inventor named Stuart McRae, who was working on a project of the greatest possible secrecy. McRae had been approached by a clandestine organisation known as MIR, Military Intelligence Research, and asked to develop a new type of magnetic mine, one that could be used for guerrilla attacks on Hitler's ever-growing navy. The date was the spring of 1939, and Hitler had just ordered his infamous Plan Z, the immediate and massive strengthening of the German navy. Rather than competing in a naval arms race it could not afford, Britain decided it would be cheaper to sink Hitler's ships rather than build new ones of their own. And now, back to the story of Cecil Clark and Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Stuart McRae agreed to take on the project of developing the deadly new mine, but he soon became unstuck. Unable to work out how to design such a dirty bomb, he turned to his old friend Cecil Clark, whose brain, he knew, was used to finding out-of-the-box solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Clark showed characteristic enthusiasm from the outset, informing McRae that lethal weapons could be constructed from the simplest pieces of equipment. McRae was nevertheless surprised to find that their first port of call was a grocery store on Bedford High Street. Here, they bought some large tin bowls. Next, they visited a local hardware store and bought some high-power magnets. And then they took everything back to Tavistock Street where Clark created an experimental department by sweeping a load of rubbish and more children off a bench. Clark took to the task in hand with undisguised relish. He commissioned a local tinsmith to make a grooved metal ring that could be screwed onto the bowl. 
When this was done, he pulled bitumen into the ring and used it to secure the magnets. His idea was to fill the bowl with blasting gelatine and then screw on a makeshift watertight lid. The key factor was to make the mine light enough to stick to the side of a ship. Eventually, after using up all the porridge in the house in place of high explosive for filling, after juggling about with weights and dimensions and flooding Clark's bathroom on several occasions, we got this right. There was just one thing missing. A bomb could not explode without a detonator, and the detonator for this particular weapon needed to be absolutely reliable. If it exploded too early, it risked killing the underwater swimmer. Clark set about designing a spring-loaded striker that was held in a cocked position by a soluble pellet. When the pellet dissolved in the water, the striker would hit the detonator and the bomb would explode. But finding a suitable pellet proved difficult. The two men tried all manner of devices, but none of them worked in a satisfactory fashion. Pellets made of powder dissolved too quickly. Pellets that were too compact didn't dissolve at all. In the end, it was Clark's children who inadvertently provided the solution. As Cecil swept them off his workbench for the umpteenth time, he upset their bag of aniseed balls and dozens of sweets rolled across the floor. McRae popped one into his mouth and began playing with it on his tongue. As he did so, he was struck by how it shrunk in size with absolute regularity. It was exactly what was needed. The last remaining problem was to find a suitable means of storing their magnetic mine. It was essential that the aniseed ball be protected from damp, otherwise the mine risked exploding while in storage. Their solution was once again homespun but inventive. They pulled a condom over the striking mechanism and found that it formed a perfect damp-proof sleeve, expanding neatly over the various bumps and creases. Thus it was that two middle-aged gentlemen found themselves walking around Bedford, going from chemist to chemist, buying up their entire stocks of condoms and earning ourselves an undeserved reputation for being sexual athletes. Cecil Clark's weapon was a work of technical wizardry. For less than six pounds, including labour, he'd produced an explosive device that was lightweight, easy to use and devastatingly effective, one that had the potential to be a game-changer in time of war. For if a single diver, equipped with a single limpet mine, could destroy a single ship, then it stood to reason that a team of divers could destroy a fleet of ships, and that made it a very significant weapon indeed. It was also extremely versatile. Its magnetic surface meant it could be used to blow up turbines, generators, trains, anything indeed that was made of metal. It was the perfect weapon for sabotage. Small, silent, deadly and with a dark touch of mischief. Clark's weapon was to be used for countless guerrilla operations during the course of the Second World War. It was used to sink German battleships, to destroy Nazi power stations and ruin infrastructure vital for Hitler's army. Indeed, it was so brilliant that Clark was very soon inducted into Britain's top-secret guerrilla unit on the orders of Winston Churchill himself. Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare did exactly what it said. It tore up the rule book of war and sought to fight a very dirty war against the Nazis. 
Clark himself would go on to develop a string of other weapons, including the lethal grenade used to kill Hitler's favourite, Reinhard Heydrich, the Butcher of Prague. Amazingly, his work was so secret and kept so hidden from prying eyes that it's only now, thanks to the discovery of extraordinary private papers, that Cecil Clark's story can be told. And if you enjoyed this story from Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, then do tune in next week when we'll be looking at the dark career of Colin Gubbins, Winston Churchill's very own maestro of ungentlemanly warfare. (laughs) 